You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. Hello everyone, Danny Anderson here. Thanks again for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Um, as you know by now, I am an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And this is sort of my part-time gig, but I like to talk to you all. So please, if you can uh, go over to the iTunes page and rate the show and leave a little review, it'll help other people find it. I want to remind you to do that right off the top. And if this is the first time you're listening to the show, uh, just as a little intro, our topics, we tend to choose subjects, specific subjects that organically allow us to think about larger institutional structures. Uh, it's just sort of the way this is, whole thing is developed. And uh, today we have a very interesting subject. I want to first thank Kristen Philippic for making this uh, connection. She drew this group's uh, existence to my attention and asked me if I was interested in doing a show uh, interviewing um, some representatives of the group. And I was excited to do so. And so if you don't know, you hear Kristen's name on all of our networks uh, podcasts because she is sort of the glue that holds this thing together in a lot of ways. So, uh, but our topic for today, <clears throat> excuse me, is the Bruderhof community. And joining me are two representatives, um, Viri Juliet and Peter Momsen. Uh, Viri, do you want to uh, introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. Um, I'm a member of the Bruderhof community. I'm currently working, um, doing an internship with First Things Journal in Manhattan. Um, previously, I've worked with Bruderhof's Plow Publishing House. Um, grown up in the States and in England, some of my childhood. Um, so that's me. All right. Thank you, Viri. Uh, and Peter. Hi, Danny. It's great to be with you. I'm an editor with uh, Plow Publishing House. That's the Bruderhof's Publishing House, uh, where I'm the editor of the Plow Quarterly magazine. And I also... Uh, do with my friend Bernard Hibbs in England a podcast too uh, called Bruderhof Talk Fest. So it's uh, sort of great to collaborate on uh, this podcast. 
Thanks for uh, sharing that. I will absolutely share a link uh, to uh, that podcast in the show notes for this one. So uh, anyone who's interested can, can go listen to the, uh, uh, the, the, the show right from the horse's mouth there. So uh, this will be just sort of an introduction kind of show then for you. Um, and so let me just begin by throwing out a, a question from uh, a question that many of my listeners may have. You are from an Anabaptist tradition. Am I correct? Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, and so I'm from Ohio. And so when I think of Anabaptists, I'm thinking of sort of the Amish, the Mennonite tradition. Those were the communities that were near me. Um, in what ways are you similar and in what ways are you, do you kind of diverge from that expression of the Anabaptist tradition? Well, Barry, you're, uh, you probably run into this in Manhattan a lot. Why don't you take that one on? I do. Um, so the way we women dress does look rather similar to um, the Amish or Old Order Mennonites. Um, so I do get the question a lot, hey, are you Amish? Um, and I usually say, you know, no, we're similar. We have theological similarities. Um, the man who founded the Bruderhof in 1920, Eberhard Arnold, um, grew up Lutheran. And then through the revival movements of the at the turn of the century, um, which were really global movements, um, became baptized and was kind of seeking for a tradition um, that, you know, affirmed personal conversion, um, but also a way of life that, you know, following Christ is not just a personal feeling, but it, it needs a kind of holistic way of life that affirms Christ and his teachings in every corner of our lives. And he came across Anabaptist writings. Um, Pete can correct me if I have the history wrong, but he just felt a real spiritual kinship with that tradition. Um, so we've adopted many aspects of that tradition, but we do not go back all the way to the 17th century um, as the Amish or Mennonites do. Um, Peter, do you have any I would say, I mean, that's exactly right. I think a big part of what attracted the early members of our community to the Anabaptist tradition. And, and we have been adopted into that. And many of our members, you know, including my wife grew up in those traditional Anabaptist traditions, uh, was this idea of the gospel being something that was not just a religious or a private exercise of religion, but was an entire life, something that was uh, a tool for social justice uh, for an, integrated life of work and worship. And so those are the things we kept share in common. Where we're different, I would say, is that some of the groups you've mentioned are really also traditional cultures. Um, they eschewed technology in the case of the Amish and in, in the case of some of the older order Mennonites as well. Um, so the distinctions are uh, that we, we are obviously pretty comfortable with technology, uh, but we do feel like them that the gospel needs to find expression in, in all aspects of life, economic, uh, practical, cultural, artistic, literary. And the other sort of distinction is more just a matter of, of who we are personally, that we're a group of, of people from a wide variety of backgrounds, countries, and cultures, whereas I would say, for instance, the Amish, at least the picture that most people are familiar, familiar with, you know, tend to be a kind of German-speaking ethnic group in places like Ohio or Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, and that honestly, that was the the one of the most interesting aspects of uh, your uh, of your community when I started doing some research here. It, you seem to have uh, almost an evangelical approach to this. You encourage converts into um, the Bruderhof community. Am I correct? Yeah, I think that's a really important point, which I was going to add is that you know the point of our life together in community is not to kind of drop our skirts away from the evil world, but it's that, you know, it's a positive thing. Um, this is the best way and the fullest way that we've found to live out the gospel. And so with that goes, of course, um, seeking out other people who are also following Jesus. And then of course, um, you know, mission as in showing people our way of life, offering hospitality, um, making connections, hosting events. So Definitely evangelical in the sense of mission. Peter, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I, well, I can just compliment it by saying I like the word evangelical that you use there, Danny, because I think evangelical, of course, the root is evangelium, the gospel. So we're very passionate about the gospel, right? Um, that's what our life is about. That is not an exclusive thing. We don't think everyone has to live like the Bruderhof. However, we do think that a life fully lived in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus taught, one that involves peacemaking, uh, justice, love, mutual aid, a place where nobody's better and more important than anybody else, where the people with disabilities, the, uh, the elderly, um, ex-felons, ex-addicts, people off the street can all live together as brothers and sisters. That's the type of life that we all want, and that's the kind of life that we believe Jesus is talking about in the in the gospel, and we're very excited about that. And wherever we see people doing that, we don't really care um, necessarily about dogmatic differences we may have with them. We're into that. We're interested in that, and that's uh, what we try to promote and encourage. And of course, being a community such as we are, we do also welcome anybody in. I mean, all of us decided to join this way of life as adults. We weren't born into it. And so uh, that is something that's really important to who we are. But our, you know, our, our goal in this is not ultimately to recruit people. You can't really do that anyway. My personal take on that would be, you know, that has to be a calling that an individual feels personally. This is what I need to do with my life. And we certainly love it when people do that. That's not really the sort of the, the purpose of our evangelism. Uh, the purpose is to say it is possible for human beings to live together to share everything, to live in peace and nonviolence, to be faithful in marriage, to raise healthy families, to live sustainably in nature. These are all things that are not impossible ideals, but stuff that we can really do, uh, we believe, through the power that Jesus gives us to live together, to forgive one another, to make peace with one another, and so to stay together as a community and, and find our way together. So uh, maybe that's more, more of an answer than you were asking for, Danny, but... Uh, it does all kind of hang together with the whole purpose of why we do what we do. Yeah, no, no, that, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for, actually. This is a very, uh, I was very excited uh, with this uh, by the topic because I feel like you are uh, such an anomaly, really, in so many ways. And between not only the secular world, uh, or from the secular world, but also from traditional denominational uh, Christianity. And, and I feel like that marginality that you guys represent is, is just really fascinating. And it allows us to think about 
those institutions that you are in the margins of. And and one thing, uh, I know there are other sort of non, uh, uh, I guess, non-Amish <laughs> Anabaptist traditions that are more sort of mainstream uh, Christian denominations. I believe the Brethren um, are one of them. Um, uh, how are you, how do you differ from those more mainstream Anabaptist traditions? Well, we have a lot of friends in all those traditions from the most conservative Amish to, you know, the most liberal brethren or Mennonites. Um, and you're right, there's, you know, Anabaptism is an extremely broad spectrum of, of different types of folks. I would say just to really generalize here and, and uh, at the risk of overgeneralizing, the brethren or some of the big Mennonite denominations like Mennonite Church USA um, are not too dissimilar from mainline Protestant denominations and sort of the way they work. Of course, they share with us this history and um, somewhat of a commitment to nonviolence and to an ideal at least of community. Um, but in the way that they actually function as religious organizations, they don't function that much different than, say, the United Methodist Church or PCUSA. Mm -hmm. uh, we are a vowed religious group. You take vows when you become a member. Um, you affirm and the community has discerned that this is your calling. You give up all uh, your property, but not unlike somebody entering a, a religious order. Uh, you promise to be faithful to this way of life for, for the rest of your life. And uh, so there's a high level of, of trust, of mutual commitment. And uh, so I think just in the way that the whole, you know, the day-to-day the, the -day aspect of our lives um, is a little different than, you know, if you're a member of a church that you attended on Sunday and maybe went to a Bible study during the week. Mm. Well, and I think that that's difference is what you can teach us, right? I mean, the, the, the differences that you embody are very instructive for, for frankly, the rest of us. Uh, Viri, do you have uh, anything to add to Peter's statement? Uh, I think that was good. Covered it. Okay. Um, and by the way, Peter, you don't have to worry about speaking in generalities. There's sort of an ongoing joke on this show that I, I paint with broad brushstrokes so often someone's going to create uh, a device to help me actually uh, with that problem. So <laughs> this is a, this is something that we do generally okay, on this show. <laughs> so don't worry I, about it. I will that. generalize. I will generalize, generalize promiscuously then. Yeah. If, if we ever come up with a, a bingo card for the show, that's definitely going to be on there. Me admitting to painting to, with broad brushstrokes. Um, uh, and let me just ask then about the history of the founding, I suppose, of the Bruderhofs. This is not a something that was imported from Germany uh, in the uh, in the 1700s. This is something that was a more recent creation. Does it have some sort of, oh, I guess, protest element to its inception? Or what is the, the general history of, uh, um, of how the Bruderhof community was founded? Well, absolutely, it does. Uh, and I guess I have a certain amount of interest here because... Uh, the founding couple, Edward and Emmy Arnold, are actually my uh, great grandparents. So uh, okay. it's been a matter of interest to me. I also wrote a, wrote a book 
um, about the history, which your readers are certainly welcome to check out, came out a couple of years ago called Homage to a Broken Man. Um, the movement, as Vera mentioned a little while ago, um, began with people who were in sort of revival evangelistic Christianity within the Lutheran church, but who through the experience of World War I um, were shaken to the core. What is Christianity really about? Is conventional uh, Western Christianity really Christianity at all? And the two things that really shook them were um, the horrifying social disparities between rich and poor that were laid bare by the Great War and the carnage on all sides that was blessed by religious leaders. In, in Germany's case, there were actually bishops blessing bombs, you know, being brought out to the front. Mm. And these things forced them to a, a kind of crisis of faith where they returned to the Gospels and read particularly the Sermon on the Mount that's in the Gospel of Matthew um, chapters 5 to 7, where Jesus speaks, you know, some of his most uh, controversial teachings and, and least often practiced teachings, love your enemies, forgive all those who hate you, whoever asks for something, give it to them, go the second mile, um, do not divorce, uh, pray for your enemies, do not care about tomorrow, don't store up material possessions. And this was in such contrast to the conventional middle-class Protestantism they'd grown up with that they were really excited. And they gathered groups of people in their townhouse in Berlin, uh, everyone from anarchists to members of the, the, the Nationalist uh, uh, Party that were trying to uh, do a putsch after the uh, revolution of 1919 in Germany and talked about this stuff and eventually ended up um, moving out into the country to found essentially a, an intentional community, a settlement, they called it, in Zanerts, Germany, uh, in, in Hesse, where they were joined by others over the course of the following years. They were sort of seen as part of the religious socialist movement uh, at the time that was associated also with Karl Barth, the well-known theologian. Mm -hmm. And uh, they grew over the course of the next 13 years, from 1920 to 1933, when Hitler, of course, came to power. Within weeks, they were already raided by the police um, and experienced then a, a second big raid at the end of 1933. Um, There's escalating hostility on the part of the regime. Uh, all the men who were liable to military subscription, the community was committed to nonviolence, had to leave. Um, all the children were sort of uh, whisked out of the country to avoid Nazi indoctrination. And then in 1937, finally, the Gestapo closed the place down as a communist nest, it was called. And the members all fled um, to the Netherlands, eventually to England. And through the course of all this kind of history, the community is growing more and more international. Uh, in just a few years in England, where they, which took them in as refugees, the community actually became minority German, which is where it started, and took in a lot of um, British pacifists. They were supported by a wide range of well-known um, British peace organizations. And then they were actually invited to leave Britain as well once Britain entered World War II because of all the uh, enemy aliens amongst them. They spent the World War II in South America. Uh, Paraguay was the only nation that would take in this mixed national group during World War II. 
And then the U.S. Uh, let them in in the 50s. Uh, so that's where our communities first started about 60 years ago in the Hudson Valley, New York, initially, and then spreading out to a bunch of different states uh, in this country where we actually now have our biggest presence. A lot of Americans joined after World War II. Again, a lot of people who had been conscientious objectors in the Second World War uh, joined the community. And so it's really been become a pretty international mix. There's, you know, we still have a German name and, and certainly roots in that protest, initial protest movement, post-World War I Germany. Uh, but if you visit our communities and anybody is welcome to, uh, we invite people to do that. We love having visitors. You'll quickly see there's folks from kind of all over. Um, Viri, do you have anything to add to the the history or even the present day um, in, uh, look of the community? Well, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, that did kind of start as a protest movement. Um, it's been something I've been thinking about recently because, you know, at the time when the Bruderhof was founded, there were, you know, many people all over Europe kind of with this gut feeling that something was terribly wrong um, with society, with conventional Christianity. Um, and there were all kinds of little utopian movements popping up based mm -hmm. around, you know, handcrafts or organic gardening or Eastern religion, you know, really anything. Um, and it was kind of in this, this ideological mix that the Bruderhof began. But I think why we're still here a hundred years later is, you know, by the grace of God that what Ebar and Emmy looked to and found um, and the others who joined them was the Gospels um, and also the witness of the early Christians. So, you know, Ignatius, the DDK. Um, and I think, you know, in a way it was something new at the time, but it was really ad fontes. It was really back to the source. Um, so it's not, it was protesting against, you know, the current situation of inequality, war, um, hypocrisy, but it was not coming up with some trendy new thing. It was really going back to the basics. And I think that, you know, that's relevant to every period of time, you know. Um, today is, of course, very different from 1920s Europe, um, but the gospel is still absolutely true. And Jesus's message to us is still true um, and will never change. Yeah. And so, also, I'm thinking as I'm listening to the history of this uh, organization, this this community, let me call it, um, is uh, what I'm gathering is that it's not as much a protest against the world, right? The secular world. Uh, the secular world is what it is. It seems to me so much of what has inspired your history and the developments of your history has to do with protesting the way that... Um, mainstream uh sort of middle brow christianity uh, middle class i think christianity is what the word you used um peter has adopted worldly institutional patterns and, and you're sort of trying to remove yourself from those religious communities as much as those secular communities am i right about that well i'm not sure i would characterize it as removing or, or separating ourselves from them i mean i think we're trying to remind anyone who calls themselves a Christian, but really anybody who's in any way inspired by, you know, the, the, the religious tradition that began with Abraham, that mm. these are our roots, right? That, that 
the idea of justice, the idea of uh, living as caretakers of nature, the idea of sharing with one another that there shouldn't be a big difference between rich and poor, that we should love each other, take care of each other. These are things that go back even before uh, Jesus of Nazareth to the Hebrew prophets, to Isaiah, uh, to the law of Moses. And these are ultimately uh, things that are universal to human beings. We all we all long for community, for a place where people are brothers and sisters together. And, you know, that's the the stuff of a million, you know, sappy pop songs. Right. <laughs> so uh, there's there's something. I think kind of common ground, just human about it and what we're trying to say and remind people and and you're right particularly christians who are committed to the same uh teachings that we are to the same bible we are listen this is this is our heritage this is not something that we talk about this is not um you know there's a a line that was used by a bunch of lutheran uh theologians in the mid-century about the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus. You know, this is the impossible ideal. We, we're not really supposed to do this because it's just too bizarrely difficult. It's too, um, it's too revolutionary. And what we're trying to remind folks is, no, uh, this, is, this is what the whole source of Christianity was from the beginning. And what's more, um, it's the source of all the movements that are the stepchildren of Christianity, and which I include... You know, a lot of the movements for social justice that have arisen in the Western society since the Enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah, actually. And, and we, we actually feel a deep sense of commonality with people in all those movements and in those churches who, with us, sense that there's, there's something more to life uh, than just the regular uh, conventional Christianity that we've seen all too often, uh, not really providing answers to people's, you know, spiritual, but also practical problems. Um, I would also add on a personal note, I've spent the last, you know, 10 months in Manhattan, rubbing shoulders with Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, um, Anglicans, and I've just been incredibly humbled um, by the love and welcome and hospitality and friendship that's been extended to me. So I think that you know, there are so many um, Christians who, even though I do have, you know, deep theological differences with, um, have been very good friends and also friends of our our movement of the Bruderhof. Um, so I think, a, I guess a, a great focus, um, and it's just a natural human focus, is to find connections with people and to find people who are passionate about um serving Christ um, in their lives. Yeah. And in that way you are standing, I think, I think people admire what you do because it looks like the book of Acts, the church of the book of Acts. Um, and, and I want to get into some specifics of uh, how you practice uh, your faith. Um, but I think that's what it, 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 to me looks like that, that community holding things in common and whatnot. And it sort of reminds us of the thing that we are all aspiring towards, but within capitalism uh, is difficult to actually attain.
Hello, everybody. This is Danny taking a quick break from the show to remind you that you can get in contact with us. If you like what you hear, if you don't like what you hear, I love to hear back from you. I'd love some show ideas. I'd love some feedback, some things that we leave out. Whatever interests you about the show, I want to hear back from. There's a couple of ways to do that. First of all, you can go to the Facebook page, uh, like the page. You can participate in the conversation there. There's also our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. You can comment under the show notes of each episode right there. Uh, in addition, we have a Twitter account and we have a Gmail account, which you can find on the website. Uh, but I also want to ask you to go to iTunes and leave a review. I really love doing this show. And the more people that I can engage with, the happier I am. And so if you go to iTunes, you leave a review for the show, rate the show, uh, more people will find it. And that would make me personally very happy, but it would also open up the conversation. So uh, if it's possible for you to take a couple of minutes to do that in the next uh, day or two, that would be awesome. Now back to the show. Okay, so a, a significant conversation that's been going on for quite some time now circles around Rod Dreher and his so-called Benedict option. I know that my listeners are probably familiar with this. Nathan Gilmore on Christian Humanist Profiles, our sort of sister podcast in the Christian Humanist Radio Network, interviewed uh, Mr. Dreher about that uh, some time ago. And that's been going on uh, for some time, this dis- dis- discussion about withdrawing from public life as Christians into sort of more local community. And it seems to me uh, you guys might find that redundant. Um, do you have any thoughts on on what Rod Dreher has been uh, uh, about that conversation? Uh, Viri and Peter? All right. Um, this is definitely a conversation I've had with many people. Um, and I think that for us, you know, if you'd come across a Bruderhof, you may think, oh, they're kind of withdrawn. You know, they may look a little different. Um, their life does have a kind of separate rhythm. Um, but it's never been the purpose of our life together. Um, the purpose of our life together has been to, um, you know, fully serve Christ with other Christians. Um, and this has kind of been the shift that it's taken. Yeah. Pete, do you want to take it? Okay. Well, I mean, Rod Dreher is a, a friend of mine, and uh, I really respect his his work and his book and his proposal. Um, Ashley, we did an event with him in Manhattan uh, about six weeks ago where we talked about exactly this. Uh, and you can actually watch that online. Um, it's, there's a, a video of the whole thing uh, with a panel discussion with Ross Douthat from the New York Times and Jacqueline Rivers from uh, Seymour Institute of Black Studies. Um, Michael Ware, he used to work in the Obama White House and a bishop from the Rudolph community is just talking about exactly this. Uh, what I think a lot of people have gotten the Benedict option wrong. There's a great deal of debate about the Benedict option that from people who don't seem to have really read Rod's book. Uh, so that's the first thing to note. Now, Rod is calling for what he calls strategic separation. Uh, and I think people get really nervous when they hear that. They think withdrawal, I think heading to the hills. Uh, some type of scary thing happening on the side somewhere. And I get that. What I appreciate about Rod's proposal, and I'll just get to how it relates to what we're doing in a minute, is he's saying, let's look at American Christianity or American religion in general 
how well are we really doing at passing on the faith to the next generation? How well are we doing at actually living a Christian life? And it uh, hangs in with some of the stuff we were talking about earlier in this conversation. How well are we living in such a way that people can look at it and say, wow, that's different. That only makes sense if they would, uh, it only makes sense for them to live that way if they believe in Jesus. Mm. And a lot of uh, American Christianity is just not that way, right? It's mainstream American dream uh, stuff with a little bit of religious sprinkling added on. So to the extent that he's calling for people to live their faith more fully, I can, I only can say, you know, that's great. And it's highly necessary. Where I think Rod Rare doesn't go far enough is he's, uh, proposes that we look at the rule of St. Benedict, uh, the founder of the monastic movement uh, in the ashes of the Roman Empire. Uh, I wish he would go back to the early Christians, actually. Go back a few centuries farther back. Mm. Uh, the book of Acts, Acts 2 and 4, describes how the first Christians lived together. They were, so to speak, strategically separated, and yet they were fully part of the world. Uh, after all, Christianity uh, changed from a sort of minority sect in a provincial town on the outskirts of the empire into the dominant religion in the Roman Empire within a couple of centuries. So how separated was that in a sort of withdrawal way? It wasn't. And yet they certainly were different. They were countercultural. They were considered very strange, if not weird and threatening at times by the authorities uh, in the Roman Empire. They were persecuted at times. So I think Rod's definitely pointing in the right direction. Uh, I think we should take the conversation even farther and uh, look at what it means to really be a countercultural, creative minority in a society that really is not based on Christian principles. So what does that have to do with us? Uh, I think that type of early Christian option, so to speak, is exactly what we are about. Uh, that is not a matter of isolation or withdrawal, but it is a matter of building up a community. That is a counterexample to the values of the wider society. Uh, and that is really how Christianity began. And, and in my books, that's what Christianity is meant to be. You know, uh, just a side note, Danny, and it, it, you know, this is one of my just things that makes me furious. Anytime that you see people building some type of countercultural society, instantly the uh, cry goes up, isolation, isolation, isolation. They're separating themselves from, from the wider society, right. which I think is just hilarious. You a ask your average person, how many close friends do you have? And how different are those close friends from you? Um, and in a normal society, working a regular job out there, and uh, you know, I've been there. Frankly, there's not that much diversity in the people you know uh, most of the time, and there's not a huge circle of friends. And and it, we look at the statistics of loneliness and social isolation in society. That's just borne out statistically. In community. You're with hundreds of people who you know intimately who are very different from you, from different social classes, different cultural backgrounds. And what's more, uh, you're more able to be involved in your local community because you have that basis. So uh, I actually think that aspect of the critique of, of the Benedict option is, is just absolutely false based on my own experience. 
Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And frankly, Peter, I'd never thought of that. Uh, the critique about isolationism comes from a society that is inherently fragmented to its core, right? I mean, even all of our the social media that we sort of depend on for our mediating our relationships, that I think is an illusion of relationship more than, I mean, it's actually physically separating you from people, right? And so I think that you, that's a really good uh, point uh, about that. The, the, the position of that critique. Um, and frankly, that uh, something I hadn't really considered before, but you've uh, you've kind of sold me on that. That's a really good. Uh... I, I mean, I think it's just absolutely hilarious, right? Here we have secular uh, psychologists and doctors talking about an epidemic of social isolation, right? Uh, which has huge health consequences. Apparently it increases by, I believe, according to one study, your chance of dying within the next seven years by 30%. And meanwhile, uh, huge amounts of seniors in our society are socially isolated mm -hmm. and to then be told by well-meaning people that community is a form of isolation is just uh you know there's a certain humor in it yeah i mean there's almost a, a kafka-esque paradox built into this uh, for, uh, from my perspective and that, that's that's actually really interesting um and i was just uh speaking with uh, viri off air uh before uh, we started the call um recently we did a show about the 2009 book shop classes Soulcraft, and that book was very influential in my own thought and i think that that show if you ever go back and listen to it will explain why but his main critique is of the way we approach work and we're sort of we've designed a society that somehow isolates us from our labor. Right. And so our work is no longer tangible or meaningful. It's all sort of um, distant and meant just to sort of manage relationships with supervisors rather than to create anything productive. Um, and I think that that is a, 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 an instantiation, a, like a version of this kind of fragmentation that modern society um, places us all in. We're sort of born into this state of fragmentation that not only applies to our work, but also permeates our relationships uh, with other people. And, and I think that um, this is why your community is so interesting to me, honestly. I think it it, uh, it sparks these kinds of conversations. Um, and it, can I use that then as a, um, a transition to some of the more uh, concrete um, aspects of your community? Uh, and this is, if you go to bruderhoff.com, uh, that's B R U D E R H O F dot com. Their website is, is uh, quite a spectacular website, I have to say. Um, uh, it's, it's a it's a wonderful website that sort of explains much of uh, of your philosophy and the way that you um, operate. And one of the uh, tabs is working together. And so I, I would think I would want you guys to talk a little bit about some of the aspects of your community, some of the sort of tangible aspects um, that push back on this isolating fragmentation of modern society that we have just been talking about. Let's talk about work. Uh, what does work look like in the Bruderhof, in a, in a Bruderhof community? Well, the, the man who founded the Bruderhof, Abhor Arnold, once wrote that work is love in action. Um, so the work we do um, in a various different departments, you know, we have factories, um, we have our publishing house, and then just kind of the daily grind of communal life, the daycare, communal kitchen, um, the farm agriculture, um, all of that is an expression of our service and our love to each other. Um, so I think, you know, one narrative I hear a lot and definitely heard, you know, as I was graduating from college is that 
you need to find a job that fulfills you. Um, on one hand, I definitely believe that. Um, but to me, that fulfillment doesn't mean I'm doing something that I love um, or I'm doing something, um, you know, for example, I, I enjoy writing and editing. Um, but what's truly fulfilling is working, doing a task that, that I really believe in um, and, you know, working to take care of people who I love. Um, so I think that another problem I see out here is the stratification of work that, you know, a white collar job um, is so much more important and prestigious than um, say working in a daycare mm. um, for us, you know, everything, everything has value. Everything contributes to the community. Um, and I think work is an important part of how we express our love to each other as Christians. Mm. And in practical terms, you know, this, this sort of uh, little motto we have that work is love made visible uh, only makes sense because nobody's getting a paycheck, right? Right. So the person working at the publishing house, the plumber, the farmer, the doctor working in our community, the lawyer working on a community uh, are all making the same, which is zero. And that means that our work has a different character. Uh, the work is not motivated primarily, certainly not for personal monetary gain, but also not even necessarily for efficiency per se. Uh, it's work is uh, genuinely, uh, genuinely intended to be a form of service. And as such, you know, if, if I am asked and I may be asked tomorrow, uh, to spend, spend my day, you know, turning the compost pile, uh, and I've done that and I, I do that occasionally. I also help out in our wood shop, uh, in between working and editing the publishing house. This is all part of a greater integrated whole. Uh, and because we do live in a capitalist society, of course, we, you know, can't live off of, of nice ideas. We have a couple of businesses. We make uh, equipment for the disabled uh, with a company called Rifton Equipment, uh, mobi mobility equipment, uh, especially for people with cerebral palsy and similar conditions. We also have a, a business called Community Playthings that makes furniture and toys out of uh, natural wood for kindergartens and schools. So we do work together. We got to sell. We got to deliver stuff on time. Uh, to our customers, we got to do good customer service. We have to be professionals, and certainly people in the professions need to be professionals. And yet, it's not driven primarily by money. And our businesses themselves, which are, you know, quite successful, uh, are not structured solely around the profit motive. In fact, uh, if you'll talk to the uh, brothers and sisters who are tasked with leading our businesses, they'll say, you know, we're unique in that although we're you know, a, a capitalist business, so to speak. We're there to make money. We certainly have to do that. Otherwise, we couldn't eat. An equally uh, big driver in our business-making decision is how can we create meaningful work for an entire community, for people aged 18 to 85, so that all can participate. And if you would go into one of our, our, our workshops uh, or one of the work departments in our community, you would see people of all ages, of all levels of ability working together. And our, our businesses are actually structured in order to allow that. That's one of the big business drivers. Weirdly enough, that also seems to create a successful business. 
you've changed the way that work is valued um, from a personal individual achievement on a hierarchical scale in sort of general society. And so this is why certain jobs are more prestigious or whatnot um, to something in which work is a service towards others. And your identity then is not based in uh, the accumulation of something, but the emptying out of yourself uh, into the lives of others. Um, and I think that that's uh, entirely, I mean, it seems entirely consistent with uh, particularly the church of acts that we see uh, in, in the Bible there. Um, that's fascinating. Um, and, and you said you do run business there. Were, I think I saw three uh, listed in uh, uh, when I was doing my research uh, the, uh, and they were located in communities in America, all the way to Australia, I think something is located, right? Right. There is also a business uh, in our communities in Australia. Uh, they make signage. So sort of handcrafted signage. They develop that. And, you know, members in our different communities also work off the, uh, you know, outside of the community, outside of our communal businesses, certainly for training purposes as well. Uh, so it's not like everyone's only on the property, but those are sort of the main things. And this idea of our common work being also our form of worship is really important. That actually goes back, speaking of the Benedict option, goes back to the Benedictine ideal of aura et labora, you know, work and pray that that our daily tasks are not something extrinsic to what we really care about, to our religious calling or to our emotional satisfaction, but really are the form in which we show who we are and what we're about as human beings. Yes. Yes. Um, and which is not uh, an individual achiever, but someone working towards a, uh, you know, a more common good. Uh, and I think that's 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 beautiful. Uh, and and Vera, you had mentioned graduating from college. Now, those of us who come from Ohio, who uh, know the Amish and, and Mennonite tradition, um, although I was aware of uh, some Hutterite communities, which I think is closer to you uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but uh the idea of going to college is kind of alien uh, for the Anabaptist tradition. Uh, what is what role does higher education, and then we could talk about like primary and secondary education as well. What does that look like in a Bruderhof community? I think it's it's different for every individual young person. Um, often, you know, if someone's interested in in a practical vocation, you can learn that you know on the ground, right where you are. Um, and then beyond, so I was interested in, in editing, writing, um, so studied English in college. Um, but beyond that, <clears throat> I think it's also important for young people to, you know, have different experiences, rub shoulders with, you know, people on the other side of the world or in the inner city. Um, so I think it's, it's a matter of both of gaining experience and then of course, um, just educating yourself. Um, but yeah, really every, each young person um, works together with, with members of the community and mentors um, to find out what education is best for them. Hmm. Um, Peter, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we need to look at this word education first, right? What does that mean? Thank you. In our present day society, Education basically means uh, adapting human beings to become useful members of the workforce, right? Keep capitalism going. Right. Uh, 
but that's not historically what the best minds on education have talked about. Education is becoming a full human being. And that's what we try to, to the extent that we can in our educational system uh, within our communities, which is also open to, to children in the surrounding area. We're not about creating superstars that all go to the Ivy League, although, you know, kids from our communities sometimes do go to the Ivy League. Uh, you know, in my case, I ended up going to Harvard, but the that's not the goal. And that there's not a hierarchy there of the good kids and the bad kids. Uh, education is about finding out what God meant you to be and learning to do that which is learning to serve, learning not only with your head, but also with your hands and with your heart. And so that's uh, really the goal of our educational system. And that's going to look really different, like very said, for, for every person. And we certainly don't despise uh, academic education. You, you need it for some things. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a God-given curiosity about the world uh, that needs to be fulfilled, you know, no matter what you are. Um, so we encourage, you know, sort of intellectual activity on, on the part of all the, all our members, you know, and that there doesn't matter if you went to college or if you went to, uh, you know, building trade school. Um, so in the case of every, you know, child or young person coming out of our communities, we really try to kind of discern with them what you know, what, what kind of calling, what kind of vocation or, or task or area of work um, would be of interest and fits for them and then support them in that. And I would say, yes, we definitely send, you know, a lot of our, our, our young, young folks to college. Um, but we also try to kind of push back against this idolization of college mm -hmm. that's in the culture around us, which is, you know, just so mindless and, and stupid and also driven by the job market more than by what's good for kids. Uh, and, and that we really honor the vocational trades. There's nothing wrong with being a good cook, with being a good cleaner. And in fact, the economy of your community doesn't distinguish between them. Right. And so, yeah, um, absolutely not. And, and you may very well come out ahead, right? Not wasting 10 years of your life going to grad school, <laughs> but instead, you know, leaping right into it into things well, i have a technical question that just came to my mind if someone is interested in going to college <clears throat> um with no sort of personal income how do, how is that uh paid for well the community would would, would support a young person okay um <laughs> that's that's great uh so and, and is there sort of an application process that they go through with the community in order to to make that happen well, there's a, like I said, a discernment process. So it's not just, well, I want to go to X, Y, Z and that's what I'm going to do. I mean, of course, if a young person wants to do that, you know, they can, it's a free country, but if you're going to do that from within the community as a member of the community, um, that would be a, a discernment process with the young person, with the community. And then, I mean, very, you just, you're a little closer to this than I, but, uh, that's sort of how I remember it working out with me. Yeah. And I would just, you know, even on a semesterly basis, um, touch base with home and say, you know, is what I'm studying making sense? Um, is, is this worthwhile? Um, and then, yeah, the, the community did take care of all the, the financing. Um, so, yeah. 
Okay, interesting. So um, another question that's coming to my mind. So I teach English, obviously, and I teach at a, a Sisters of Mercy school, which, um, you know, we have sort of the religious history, but we're not really run as a religious organization per se uh, in terms of the curriculum. And um, but I know that in evangelicalism uh, broadly, there is often a an isolationist, if you will, philosophy of education, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in which you're discouraged from encountering uh, particular works that may be challenging in some moral way. Uh, someone like Nietzsche, for example, like comes to mind. Um, how does the Bruderhof approach sort of content questions? Yeah, I mean, I would say that's probably a bit of a difference in culture between Bruderhof culture and, and what I've seen of of a lot of American evangelical culture. Um, I, I, it kind of comes from an overall view of life. Do you see the whole world is divided up into Christians and non-Christians? Or do you see the world as people, right? Who mm -hmm. Jesus came for um, and who he's ultimately going to take care of somehow, right? Uh, and so my overall conviction about the world is, is more the latter, right? And the, the New Testament tells us, Paul writes, you know, whatever is true, good, and beautiful uh, is of God ultimately and points to him. We sometimes need to do a bit of sorting out before we get there. But you take a guy like Nietzsche, who has this, you know, uh, at times blasphemous, at times very anti-Christian, and yet has this very almost early Christian critique of a compromised Christendom, if you want to look at it like sure. that, right? Uh, that is very strong and that is actually very helpful in order to sharpen your own your own faith. Uh, of course, you know, uh, you can't just head into these things blindly and just read everything and anything. I think it, it does make sense to do that with with some spiritual direction, especially the more sort of outre you're, you're getting mm -hmm. with the content you're engaging with. Sure. But, but ultimately to the extent that there's truth there, uh, that, that belongs to the gospel. Hmm. And I think that also speaks kind of education all the way down the line, because, you know, if you are strongly formed as a Christian, um, you can read and trust yourself to have the discernment. Um, you don't have confidence um, in what you believe. Um, you're kind of out there to be to be pushed around by everybody's, um, which is something I definitely experienced in college. Mm. Um, where you know I I couldn't just avoid things that were uncomfortable, and I I really didn't want to. Um, that would have made for a very dull education. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that you know if if the person is is centered in in Christ and their faith, um, it it gives them the the foundation to really um, explore and and look at the world. Um, so yeah, the the being able to you know expose yourself to whatever um, goes back to having a kind of Christian foundation all the way down. Um, so yeah. Right. And that, you know, this all said, right. I mean, I have a fifth grader and a third grader. There's certain things I don't want them exposed to. Right. I, I, you know, I, I think there's also some common sense here. Sure. 
<laughs> Absolutely. There are things that I read or even teach at the college level that uh, I don't think my kids are ready for, um, but I would like them to encounter that at some point, right? And part of my job in their early years is to prepare them for that moment when they're ready to encounter the more difficult uh, works. And they're the key is really, again, you know, frankly, and listen, with, with everything we're saying here, it's not to sound a triumphalistic Bruderhof. We, we, we have our problems, right? We, we, we struggle. We don't get it right all the time and, and we screw up uh, and don't always, you know, get it right, including in the area of education. But there is just uh, a truth that if you have a community of shared value, there's a great strength there uh, to give people also a place of safety. And I know that's a, a bit of a toxic term now with safe spaces and stuff, right. but, uh, <laughs> but a place of safety to encounter challenging things. Yeah. Because you encourage honest conversation and you have adults and, and people you trust that you can talk things over. It's not just you encountering stuff on your own. Yeah. And I guess as I'm thinking, as we're talking, it's another example of it's almost paradoxical again, people who would complain about the so-called isolationism of someone of a community like the Bruderhof uh, actually being more isolationist in more subtle ways that they just don't recognize uh, and, and being driven by kind of other forces into that isolation. Um, and so it's, it's a really uh, interesting thing. And of course, Bruderhofs are human beings, right? And so there are, uh, we just assume that there are probably problems problems in the community, right? That's not necessarily the focus of this show. But uh, yeah, we, I don't think that there's anybody who would expect a, a utopia uh, to exist in the modern world. So, or before Christ comes back, at least. And so, um, um, and so the finally, the, the thing I want to, uh, the kind of last big topic, uh, I know that sort of the, we've talked in and out about common ownership and, and sort of a community of goods and that sort of thing. Um, one of the uh, ramifications of that then is people aren't saving for retirement per se. Right. And so uh, you have a really interesting philosophy or practice of caring for one another, like from cradle to grave. And so do you want to talk us through sort of how that works? I think if you if you take a step back, um, you know, society today is is based on the nuclear family, um, and I can see where you know if a family, um, if you know a, a disabled child is born to them or their parents' age, um, it's as kind of a, a financial and emotional crisis. Um, but in community, um, and because no one has their own savings, you know, we're all out here to take care of each other. Um, so say a family with a disabled child will have, you know, the nursing support, um, an old person, um, likewise will receive the care they need. Um, and you know, that's very enriching. It's not just a matter of, you know, oh, we kind of have these, these burdensome people who, you know, us healthy ones have to take care of, um, that really ends up being, um, a ministry. And I've realized um, you know, how rich my life has been in that I have, you know, spent a lot of time with elderly people um, who aren't necessarily related to me or spent time with disabled people. Um, that's, you know, done a lot for me. Um, and I can't imagine, 
I, I really can't imagine life without that. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add. Well, I, just in terms of the specifics, we do not send, you know, we do not institutionalize the elderly in our community. They're cared for, um, even if that means round the clock care, uh, you know, we'll figure out a way to get it covered and it doesn't fall on their nuclear family. Of course, the family is important. It is the building block of community. We really respect the nuclear family uh, because that is God given. But at the same time, there was something very wise, I think, in the old village cultures that actually still exist in a lot of parts of the world where the whole village would take care of uh, people, make sure that the widows, you know, fields were tilled and, and so forth. You read the New Old Testament that that stuff has deep roots. And that's what we try to do. So, you know, growing up in the community, I had opportunities as a young man to, you know, do nights with an older brother who was dying in his last couple of years, um, just help him. I had opportunities to be with a very disabled young man my, my age who needed 24-7 care, couldn't walk, couldn't talk. Those are things where far more than anything I learned, you know, at college or anywhere else taught me what it is to be a human being. And, and our, it's really only in the context of a community, I believe, where those lessons can be learned, where such lives, you know, the pro-life movement often says every baby's a gift, every old people's a gift, every handicapped child is a gift. Well, that's that's true in, in some type of metaphysical sense, but often in a concrete economic sense, it's not true. Mm. Um, people get divorced because they have a child with special needs uh, for understandable reasons. It's only in, in a place where people really are committed to helping each other that such gifts can be received and that these people can not only be the objects of care, but also be a source of, of, of joy to others. Yeah, that's interesting. And as you were talking again, it makes me think about another thing that I think is lacking in modern society in general, but also I think particularly the the mainstream church is a lack of generational diversity uh, in church communities. Uh, I happen to go to a church right now that is doesn't suffer from this. We have children and we have very old people, um, but a lot of churches now um, are becoming the, the the age range demographic is narrowing uh, to where you may not even encounter people who are elderly, right? And there's so much, I think, wisdom and uh, and and so much to learn from uh, being with them in community that uh, I think we're losing. And you seem the way that you operate seems to you know make up for some of that loss uh, in larger societies. Yeah. And this isn't, you know, this really isn't something that Bruderhof owns, right? Like this is actually happening a lot of places I know of, you know, but it takes, especially in our Western context, takes a pretty strong decision on the part of a church community. And it doesn't require necessarily full community of goods in a common purse like we have, but it does require a really strong commitment to one another that, our money is is to be shared, right? Uh, but I know of churches in in the Andes in South America among the Aymara Indians who are doing this. I know of churches in Nigeria that are doing this. You know, Anabaptist churches in, in northern Nigeria. Actually, some of the ones being attacked by Boko Haram, mm. uh, and it's happening in in 
places in China. I know uh, there's some house churches there being persecuted that that's actually been driven them together to, you know, do more of this type of economic sharing. So it's possible. And I, I think this is this is what's exciting, uh, maybe about this present moment where Christianity seems to be moving a little bit more to the margins of, of mainstream society. This is a chance for us to look, what does it really mean to be a church community? And, and how can that play out? Yeah, I've often, the, the last couple of years, I have to be honest with you, I've been honest, honestly debating about whether to even uh, classify myself as evangelical anymore because of the political ramifications of that term. And, and yeah. I feel like something about the faith itself is being issued for uh, a public power. Uh, and, and I think that um, this is why things like the Benedict Option and the Bruderhof now are appealing to me on some level, uh, because they, they do seem to be um, stripping Christianity down to its sort of essentials and its, and its, and its core. Uh, and and part, a big part of that is community. Uh, and that, that is something that capitalism does not encourage, per se. Um, um, and actually, uh, another, I know that I promised that was going to be the last question, but one other thing came to me that we should address. Worship. What does a worship service look like uh, in the Bruderhof? Well, you know, and this is one thing where <laughs> a lot of people where, where I, I, again, drift from some of Rod Dreher's Eastern Orthodox prescriptions in the Benedict Option. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it also often takes people off guard um, when they come visit a Bruderhof community. We, we worship. We get together you know, daily, often twice a day for prayer, for reading from scripture and a lot of singing together, but it's pretty informal. And I've often heard from people who visit us, they actually find it unsatisfying. Um, <laughs> they, they come expecting an experience, right? And instead what you get is just a bunch of people getting together and reading and singing and then it's done and, and so on. Um, so worship, the way we see it, is our whole life. And we'd much rather go easy on uh, sort of religious emotions and experiences uh, and keep it sort of down to earth and focus on how we're living our daily lives. But we do, uh, uh, in terms of, it's not like, you know, somebody pointed out to me, nobody has no liturgy, right? Everybody has a liturgy. They might not just acknowledge it. And I think that's definitely true. To the extent that we have a liturgy, we just sing a lot. We, you know, if you live in this community for very long, before long, you will have memorized literally thousands of songs and we just sing together. And I would add that, you know, I've, I've made friends with, you know, Catholics, high church Anglicans who, you know, do the, the hours, praying the hours. And I realized that, you know, my upbringing in the Bruderhof, we didn't, have set hours as much, but kind of every time we're together, um, even including like coffee break in the middle of the morning um, is a chance um, for singing or for prayer, um, particularly if there's something um, we're all thinking of. Um, you know, every mealtime um, we'll pray together and sing together. So it's kind of, you know, praying, singing, um, reading from the gospels is kind of woven throughout our day um, and it's not, you know, like Peter said, it's not kind of formulated in a liturgy. 
Um, but it's, it's definitely there, um, kind of in every corner of life. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. You said it's, they find it unsatisfying visitors often. Uh, it probably, it sounds like it's neither camp meeting nor, you know, sort of the big production value of the mega church. Uh, it's just sort of a thing you do like lunch, uh, every day <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and in the way that going to work is worship. So is the singing of songs, which by the way, what kind, what was the source of the music typically? Well, you know, it's all over. <laughs> it's, it's, hymns that you know old school hymns it's spirituals it's songs from various social movements um it's uh you know folk songs a lot of folk songs from around the world uh songs about nature songs about love uh it's kids songs uh it's sort of a, a wild mix it sounds like going to a, a pete seeger concert or something like that uh, uh from yeah uh, well you know pete seeger was a real good friend of our community actually He's is that right <laughs> and uh would come up a lot and so uh i think we, lo- we learned a lot of sing- songs from him and and maybe maybe taught him a couple too so uh we we miss him still Oh, uh, we all do. Pete, Pete was awesome. So, uh, well, that's great. Um, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, when Kristen um, Philippic uh, came to me with this idea, I thought, well, it sounds like it's right up my alley, actually. And then uh, I, in looking into it, I felt more so. And then talking to you guys, it, it, it's really been enlightening and, and really thought provoking and kind of challenging on a personal level. I, I've really the last couple of days since we've been talking, been thinking more about my own just immersion in consumerism in my own ways and and ways that I could simplify my own life and and, and what I can learn from you all uh, I think is, is there's a great deal there um is there anything that you want to sort of um add that we haven't gotten to well only to say that you know having talked a bit about our life the only reason we we live this way is because we want to show that it is not an impossible ideal, right? Like I said earlier, that this is this is doable. And so it's not a matter of saying we want other folks to imitate the Bruderhof. Uh, of course, we welcome people who feel they'd like to join us. That's great. But more that we'd like to, in the words of Hebrews, you know, encourage and, and spur, spur one another on to, to love and good deeds. And that's really the sense, you know, in which we're also talking to get today. Not to say, you know, you know, we're doing great and everyone else is doing horrible, but to say, because we realize there's a lot of ways people in different churches and, and communities around the world are doing wonderful stuff that w- we aren't. But let, let's keep on, uh, you know, especially in this particular moment of history, uh, looking back to the original sources of Christianity and saying, is there, you know, how, how can we be more, more shaped by the story of the gospel and less shaped by the story of consumerism, uh, and success. Um, Viri, do you have anything? Um, that, that sounds good. <laughs> okay. Um, and I'll, and so I will, um, of course, uh, collect as many links as I can of the stuff that we've talked about. Um, Peter, you have your podcast. I'll provide a link to that. There are some links that, to the talk with Rod Dreyer you talked about. So if you go to the show notes, 
on the uh, on sectarianreviewpodcast.com. You'll find when the show is posted uh, links to all many of the things we've talked to. I'll, I'll try to catch it all. But uh, I really do encourage everyone who's listening to uh, take a look at this community. And uh, you, you are open for visitation. There's uh, it's very clear on your website. There's ways to um, schedule these. I happen to live about an hour and a half, I noticed, from one of your communities in Pennsylvania. And I'm, I think uh, I would like to come visit to see what's going on at some point. So I might personally do that as well. And I encourage other people to, to take a look and see what we can learn from, from this very uh, unique and very beautiful uh, community that uh, exists among us and just sort of under our noses, um, but has much to teach us. Um, Peter and Viri, thank you so, so much. Uh, for the time. I know that your time is valuable and uh, you could be serving other people. I'm, th- I'm glad that you're serving us today uh, with uh, this discussion. I really appreciate it. It's been a Danny, we appreciate it too. That's uh, great. And just one thing about visiting, we actually have this thing called Bruderhof for a day. If you're kind of nervous about just coming up on your own, we have this uh, monthly event you can sign up for with about up to uh, 20 people, you know, to spend a day, you know, working, playing, discussing campfires uh saturday first saturday of every month it's on our website outstanding viri yeah i would i would encourage anyone to come visit um we also love you know meeting new people hearing your stories um finding out what you're what you're up to um so yeah definitely come okay well thank you again both uh, and then please enjoy your day thank you yep bye bye